Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. wonderful music could possibly die if we don't do something about it. And it is such an integral part of our legacy and our heritage as human beings. And it is the greatest part of our human spirit, I think. And so it is my great passion, my great delight to work with people. And unfortunately, a lot of musicians are stuck in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we really have to bring it up to the 21st century in order for us to move forward with this. When I work with students, and I love working with students, is to encourage them to bring their own experience to music. Music is really just dots on a page, and unless somebody interprets them, they remain dots on a page, or they remain mechanical if you just play them in the way that they're written. And the spirit, everyone's spirit, everyone's personality must come into this. We're not doctors, we can't cure people of illness, but we can move them and bring them to a higher level when their spirits are staggered. You have to be practical, and that's part of our, the biggest mission of our, of our foundation, is to teach students how to be practical how to be business people, and how to go about their lives in that way, yet maintaining themselves as artists as well. If there's one thing I can leave people with is believe in yourself, do your work, and it's going to be fine. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Fei Wu, and I'm here for a brand new episode with a longtime friend, Cosmo Buono. Cosmo is a Steinway artist and the chairman and CEO of Alexander and Buono International. He played in major capitals and festivals throughout the world. In addition to performing, Cosmo has distinguished himself not only as a sought-after piano coach, but also one of the foremost teachers of the Le Chetetsky method in the United States. Pianists capable of a resonant, almost voice-like quality on the piano, advocating rich, expressive playing, he discourages students from the note-perfect performances that lack enthusiasm, and he's in favor of a complete understanding and communication of music. Cosmo alongside Barry Alexander, who appeared on a much earlier episode of the Face World podcast, are founders and CEOs of the Alexander and Buono company. They offer consulting services to individual musicians. They run a number of classical music competitions, including piano, voice, string, and flute. They also have a festival that runs each year, which brings students to different countries, often in Europe, for intensive training that help them excel in their music careers. I have 
witnessed so much of their dedication, hard work, wisdom that's often counterintuitive from what you learn in music schools. My favorite quote is, ABI's focus is to treat classical music like any other business, while showing their clients how to assess, market, and develop their skills in order to create greater visibility and awareness of their work. I had the opportunity to ask Cosmo also about his childhood and how he developed a lifelong interest at a very young age, but more importantly, the figures and teachers who really encouraged him to pursue his love for music. Today, ABI is one of Phase World LLC's proud clients as well, so I hope you get a sneak peek into the work I do for my clients and how I choose to help businesses like ABI thrive in the competitive market today. To learn more about our work, you could also visit phaseworld.com forward slash work. Please help share this episode with your connections that could benefit from perhaps thinking differently on how to be a musician or an artist. Without further ado, please welcome Cosmo Buono to the Phase World Podcast. First of all, welcome to the show, Cosmo. I've been wanting to do this for uh, a long while. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here and wonderful to be talking with you, Faye. No, likewise. And, you know, we recently got together with you, Barry and Adam, and that conversation really sparked and piqued my interest to say we have to do this right now, ASAP, because... Um, you have just this well of knowledge and when it comes to classical music, specifically to piano, but also for the past 10 plus years, probably much longer, you've been a huge advocate, in my opinion, to really uh, not only promote your own career, but help those out there of many ages, not just young kids, but starting with you know, young kids all the way through um, to people. I know some of your clients may be in their 70s and 80s and still very interested in learning classical music. What has this journey been like for you at a high level? I know it's kind of a grandiose question, but uh, what is that like for you professionally? Well, you know, I always tell young people, a profession is not always what you think it's going to be. When I was a student, I thought I was going to be a solo pianist. Then most of my performing career was as part of a forehand and two piano team. And now I'm working with the foundation, and that's where my heart is. That's really where my passion is, because this wonderful music could possibly die if we don't do something about it. And it is such an integral part of our legacy and our heritage as human beings. And it is the greatest part of our human spirit, I think. And so it is my great passion, my great delight to work with people. But, you know, the world has changed, and mainly because of the Internet, I think, and businesses have to change. And our business certainly has changed as, as a result of it. And unfortunately, a lot of musicians are stuck in the 18th and 19th centuries, and we really have to bring it up to the 21st century in order for us to move forward with this. Mm -hmm. It's it's really interesting to talk to you about this, and um, for the we've also been working closely for the past year or so, and I have you know firsthand 
insider view to the business model. And I've grown even more interest in developing that relationship with you and also with your students and clients uh, as well. You know, when I watched you play, I had the pleasure to kind of watch you play the piano and um, Barry was singing. And that moment kind of really sort of stuck with me all these years. I think it's been seven or eight years. And just for you personally, the way you play the piano, it's just so enjoyable. I, I know you've been doing it for a long time. And versus some of the, the pianists that I have have encountered, maybe some are younger, you feel like they're fighting something. And then there's some part of them. To me, when I see some of my own age or younger, they're thinking this form of art, like you said, may or may not exist, uh, you know, X number of years from now. People are losing the training. And yet, they have chosen such career. I feel like maybe there's some sort of internal conflict that will come out while they play. But you have a very peaceful approach to to this. Is this intentional? I mean, have you ever thought about that yourself? Yes, actually, I have. And first of all, thank you for the kind words. And thank you for all the help you give us, because I don't have the skills that you have. And you really do help move our mission forward in ways we could never do it ourselves. But to your point about, about young musicians, one of the things that I do when I work with students, and I love working with students, is to encourage them to bring their own experience to music. Music is really just dots on a page. And unless somebody interprets them, they remain dots on a page, or they remain mechanical if you just play them in the way that they're written. And the spirit, everyone's spirit, everyone's personality must come into this. And I love that passionately about music because I can encourage a student, well, what is this about? What is a nocturne about? What is tranquility about? Well, for me, it might be very different from 10 other pianists. And that's what I encourage. Because when you buy a ticket to go to a concert, you want to be there for two hours and you want to hear what the person who's who's communicating this beautiful music has to say about it. Wow, that's such a unique point of view. I remember both my cousins learning piano with their teachers and there was and um, the teacher is always incredibly strict and the kids were not having fun. But I have had the pleasure to watch the end of one of your lessons um, as we're at your home one day and the kid was smiling and I could tell, you know, a young kid, maybe around 10 or even a little younger, that he was given, he was empowered to express himself, even at a young age. So based on what you just told me, there is a sort of a unique proposition, in my opinion, in teaching, is that the student's point of view, personality, that actually matters versus all of us still at an older age to say, who can I mimic? Who can I become? Instead of really finding my, myself. You know, first of all, I think that music should be a celebration and learning should be a celebration. Um, and if it's not, it's not going to be fun. And it, you can you can bring knowledge to a student, but also make it happy and joyful. And even with a young person, I'm glad you brought up a 10-year-old, because even with a young person, you can ask them, what does this mean to you? And get them thinking in a creative way. Get them thinking about music as a language, music as an art which they are there 
to express. In my studio in New York, I often have people from all over the world. And people have different experiences with life. And I think that's another part of music is that, yes, maybe Beethoven wrote this in the 1800s in Vienna, and his life was quite different from ours. But what he was thinking about are universal truths, freedom, love, tragedy. We all experience all of it, and we may experience it in a different way. And it's up to me as a teacher to encourage a student to think in those ways, think individually, and present this in an individual way. When you're studying a piece of music, you're always making choices. A composer may write a tempo. Well, what does a tempo mean? If I say to you fast, what does fast mean? It can mean different things to different people. What does loud mean, soft mean? And you're making all of these choices, and it's deliberately vague. And what I hope I can do with students is help them to fill in that vagary in their own terms. Um, you know, so unfortunate in, in school systems today, even in the U.S., the emphasis on art in general, meaning fine art, music as an art, dancing as an art, uh, have dissipated, you know, over the past couple of decades. And even I felt it when I was in school that so much emphasis on physics and math and chemistry now, as a 34-year-old, I realize in my professional life, I have barely used any of those knowledge. I would have much enjoyed, you know, your teaching, even just the way that you articulated that without me becoming a professional pianist. Recently, uh, recently, as in a year ago, I had I went to um, visit, uh, actually, at the uh, Sander Theater, watching Ben Zander uh, actually conduct a um, orchestra for the first time, going there on purpose. And uh, he he is phenomenal, very well known in the industry. And uh, I was sitting there by myself on very hard benches with people twice my age, with a couple of young kids dragged along by their grandparents. And I remember Zander said that you're, when you listen to this piece, doesn't matter what a beautiful day that, you know, it is outside. You'll probably start crying. You start to feel emotional. I thought it was so silly. I was thinking like, I'm perfectly happy right now. There is just no, I mean, that's just, I, classical music just doesn't do that for me. But I swear, the moment they started playing, I don't know what was going on. I literally just started bawling. I just started crying. And I noticed at that moment, I may have been alone in that. And I felt almost embarrassed because nobody else near me was, you know, getting so emotional. From that point on, I was thinking, what is happening? <laughs> you know, I don't even understand the music. So that was really phenomenal for me. Right. And music has the power to move beyond the intellect right into the emotions. You know, music is used as a therapy for people who have mental problems or emotional problems. And it's used as a very effective one because when words won't do it, often the music will. And it is such an integral part. People have studied cavemen and the writings on the caveman's wall, which they can't interpret. They think it might have been music. They think it may have been them trying to write down some aspect of music. I think it's just so integral to our souls. And I think we're happier as people because of it. One concert I will never forget was in Bologna, Italy. And this was many years ago. 
And after the concert, a man came back with a woman who spoke English. Um, because despite my name, I only started studying Italian when I was 40. But um, uh, this man came back, and through the, the, um, his, his companion, he wanted to tell me that he came into the theater with a terrible problem. And he wanted to thank me because for two hours he didn't think about that problem. And, you know, we're not doctors. We can't cure people of illness, but we can move them and bring them to a higher level when their spirits are sagging. Wow. We were all at um, Cirque du Soleil watching the Atherton twins, and I felt like there's some parallel to that of me you know, going to classical um, music concerts and also watching the circus of people kind of being able to transform you for a while, even if it's not, even if it's temporary for me, I feel like it's a permanent effect, really be able to transport you to a different place altogether. Well, you had described, I I know of several musicians, one, which is you know, one of your students, George Coe, had, you know, told me the same thing when he was performing somewhere in Europe and he was maybe 20 at the time. And and the Jewish, an older Jewish woman, um, uh, I believe it was in Poland, walked up to him, 75, 80 years old, and and told him that she began to remember herself as a young girl in Poland. And that is magic, you it know. Is. It truly is. You know, when we're young musicians, often we go into elderly homes or prisons to play because it's a performing experience. You have to practice learning to be a performer. You just don't, you're not born doing that sort of thing. It's like public speaking. You have to practice and learn how to do it. And it's such a moving thing. I don't think any performer will ever forget that experience because often it's some of the only contact they have with a world that's gone for the elderly people. And you might play a piece of Chopin, which reminds them of an experience. And again, it's going beyond their circumstance and transporting them to a different world. And regarding the Cirque du Soleil, I had a wonderful time because I cannot imagine the type of things that they do and the discipline it takes. And yet it's the very same thing as as music. It takes many hours a great deal of discipline, but when they were up there doing these incredibly incredible things, I was just delighted at the fact that it looked so easy for them. They were having the time of their life doing it. So I think there is a parallel there. I must ask about your childhood because we started talking about that at dinner and I just wanted that conversation to go on. And it's so fascinating to see such a poise, such a, an accomplished Steinway artist like yourself to really remember, you know, when you're a little, little kid. So uh, I want you to kind of tell that story again. You know, when did you discover that piano and then the fact that you wanted to play? What age was that? Well, actually, the piano is my earliest recollection. My sister played the piano. And I remember the first thing I remember hearing was was her playing the piano, and I wanted to do it. And, of course, I pestered her <laughs> mercilessly uh, because I wanted to do what she was doing. And, that, and it's always been a part of me. And I was very fortunate when I was four and my parents decided to, have, uh, to give me lessons. There was a woman um, who actually was from Boston and was living um, in New Jersey um, where I, I grew up. And... 
she had such a wonderful way about her. She, she became a second mother. She led me into this music and she would talk to me and she would talk to me as a human being, not teacher to student. But, and even when you're playing the simplest of things, you can talk about the sound that you're producing. How do you want it to sound? Why, why is it good? Why is it not? And this was a tremendous influence. Unfortunately, I lost her as a teacher because she was married to a concert pianist who was tragically killed um, on his way um, from a concert in the Midwest. And she moved back to Boston. But um, I saw her as an adult, and it was a very, very happy reunion. That's the other aspect. Teachers can have such a profound influence on the development of a human spirit. Clearly, you had the pleasure to experience that firsthand, and also that was your very first experience learning. Imagine somebody who is destined to become a pianist, but because he or she had a terrible teacher as a first teacher, what if the child decides that this is no good anymore? You know that encounter, like you said, I think it's、um, profound, and you know certainly very lucky to have that. Indeed, and. I've had my share of the other type of teachers.、Um, there was one that I was—I was always trying to be a good student. But there was one where my parents would drop me off, and she would scream at me for a solid hour. And、um, all I wanted to do was get away from her. That—that <laughs> that was that was my biggest motive.、Um, and to me, it just doesn't work. As I said before, I think learning should be celebratory, whatever it is that you're learning. I always love teaching, and not just professionals. I love to work with with young people, and it's interesting. They're they're very happy to give me the reviews of their teachers in school, and the ones that they really really love are the ones who they feel are concerned about them becoming better, about about communicating a passion for the subject that they're teaching. And just in case there are students who are practicing the piano or、uh, another form of music or different instrument who is listening to this right now, and who may be say struggling with a particular teacher or moment, maybe a parent thinking、mm, my child is not enjoying this. There's a really strict teacher. I thought it was a good idea, maybe not. Or a student who's really struggling to learn from someone but still has the passion for music. I mean, what's your Advice, and it's a it's a tough one to kind of break it down. I think it is tough because the student, especially as a child, doesn't have a choice in in things. But you can move outside of it. One of the things that I've always had a great passion for for music and learning. So I read biographies of composers the way most people read novels,、uh, because I, I just I just love knowing about this. 
And I think it's important that one educate oneself. You're not going to get all the knowledge in school, even if you're dealing with the best teachers, and you're certainly not going to get it if you're dealing with a difficult teacher. So I always encourage students to be their own teacher. And to me, as a teacher, the best thing I can teach someone is to be independent. So to read, to listen, of course, and to listen to a lot of different types of performances of, of music, to go to art galleries, because composers did not live in a vacuum. They were very much aware of what other arts, uh, the other arts were doing. Read. Beethoven was a very erudite man and a great reader. He read some of the earliest um, translations of Shakespeare into German. That was kind of unheard of. That was the cutting edge at that time. So um, that's why I would advise the student. And also I would advise anyone, if you want to do something, don't let anybody tell you no. Paderewski, one of the first Steinway artists and one of the great pianists of all time, and who had an enormous career, was told at 21 that he'd never be a pianist, he should take up the trombone. Well, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And half the time, I think, with life, if you won't take no for an answer, you can succeed. I like that. You know, I know I jump around a little bit, but um, another uh, element of your career is... um, you were trained in, in several colleges. I was reading your Wikipedia page. I noticed um, Bard and noticed New York University and, of course, at Juilliard. So what's the, I guess, the relationship or the transitions there? Were you an undergrad at Juilliard's or like graduate students, yeah. perhaps? No, I, uh, I did undergrad work at Bard and at NYU. And that was very positive. Right now, Bard has its own conservatory. And... In those days, Bard was a college, and it was wonderful. It was like a kid in the candy store. I could take classes in German literature and art and science and all sorts of things. And it was I found it to be a very positive influence as I was, of course, developing as, as a pianist. I, I took a um, master's at Juilliard. NYU came in in between because um, I was taking classes also at NYU and what the things I was interested in. And, you know, students ask me, should I go the conservatory route or should I go the college route? And it depends. It depends because some students aren't ready for the intensity of a conservatory where it's music, music, music. Some need a little breathing time to, you know, which I needed. I don't think I would have done well in a conservatory as an undergraduate. And I needed that time to develop myself, not only intellectually, but as a human being, you know, and that was a very, very good step for me. But, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And I try when students ask me about what would I suggest as far as college goes, I try to get to know the student. Sometimes the least named colleges, there's a teacher there that I think would really be great for the student. So I, I think everybody has to find their own path. And I think that's helpful in life anyway, because school is wonderful and important, but it's a means to an end. And after after school, you still have to find your own pathway. Yeah, exactly. So, but your Juilliard's experience, uh, the story you told me was interesting too. I, I hope you don't mind sharing again. What was it like for you to be in a relatively small and an incredibly competitive school? Oh, it's competitive. 
<laughs> Make no mistake. <laughs> There's a student that I'm working with a bit now, and uh, she's she's uh, I'm working professionally with her, and she just finished her master's at Juilliard, and she had come from the Cleveland Institute, and she's very polite. And I said, "Well, how is Juilliard compared to Cleveland?" She said, "Well." Cleveland was a little friendlier, let's put it that way. Um, Juilliard's a very competitive place. And, I mean, you can sit down at a lunch table and somebody will tell you, well, you'll never have my double thirds. And, you know, you think, is it, was it something I ate? Or is it, you know, did I really hear that? Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, people sometimes think, if I can make you feel bad, somehow that makes me better. And it doesn't work that way. There's room in this world for everybody. And uh, I can't blame the school. I can't blame anything. But it's just there is an environment where people start to feel, if I can pull you down, then I can get a step higher. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, you've got to develop yourself. You've got to have a good business sense, certainly, but not a cutthroat. And um, these schools, sometimes the environment is more anti-art than it is pro-art. Liszt, the great composer Liszt, conservatories started around his time. He was very fearful of them. And, um, and again, conservatories do great work. I'm not knocking conservatories, but I think sometimes the environment can be just too overly competitive in an unhealthy way. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds uh, familiar to me. People have the um, mindset of a zero-sum game. If you are winning, that means I must be losing, that we cannot mm -hmm. somehow progress together. Exactly. Exactly. We have to support each other in this, in this great art. You know, I, I often think about, for many reasons, uh, not just this, but the statement Michelle Obama said when she said, those of us who have made it to the top of the ladder should not push it down on those who are, who are still climbing. And I think that's such a profound statement for all aspects of life, and um, certainly for this art. And it just, it just makes me kind of crazy where we're dealing with the greatest utterances of human spirit, and then we turn around and we're trying to, to um, knife somebody in the back. And it just, life just doesn't work that way. You may succeed a bit, but at what cost? And the other thing is people have to understand what is it that they want out of this? You know, living the life of a touring artist is not so easy. Um, you, know, you, you live as a suitcase. You're often traveling to the airport to catch a plane to go to the next city. It's not the easiest life in the world, especially if you want a personal life. And a lot of people are brought up to think, well, I'm only a success if I have Lang Lang's career. Well, that career may suit Lang Lang just perfectly, but it may not suit any, anybody else that way. And it, it was in my lifetime, too, is uh, there was a point in my life when I was playing concert after concert. And I played four concerts in a row in Italy. And, you know, after the last one, I thought, wow, is this really what I want to do? I want to think about music. I want to study. I want to play the same program over and over again. And, you know, you know, do the program, go to bed, get up, catch the train, do the rehearsal, do it again. 
nothing wrong with that. It just started not to suit me as well. So you have to find your niche and you have to find what's happy. And I, I don't perform much anymore. I do practice, um, but doing the work that I'm doing with, with helping other artists, I think this is the happiest time of my life. Yeah. And you, you've done a tremendous job. This is something I, um, I get to really witness firsthand. I mean, meaning I get to see the rough cuts of videos of these classrooms. I get to see the promo videos. And, you know, I know this is something that if you don't love what you do, you wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't start the, you know, the foundation. And, um, you know, I still I indulge in the episode recorded with Barry Alexander. So, I mean, oh, nearly three years ago now. I mean, one day, literally having some downtime or struggling at work a little bit, I would listen to that. You know, it's really uplifting to know that there are people who care. And knowing that being a classical musician or an, a classical artist is a, it can be a tough path. And you're there with them you know, every step of the way or as needed, service as needed as they choose to, is really helpful. So could you maybe tell me a bit about the early stages of maybe starting the, the piano competition? Were you surprised about the sort of the evolution of that? Where did this start? Well, first of all, I didn't want to start a piano competition. <laughs> um, a friend of mine suggested it. And I said to her, no, no, they, they, only, um, they only select mechanical players, players who never make a mistake, but there's no music being made. She said, well, why do you have to do the same thing? You can do something different. I thought, well, yeah, right. Um, so we started that, and um, I, we choose judges that will always pick someone who has a personality. In fact, one of the judges is an 80-year-old man who's been going to concerts for 70 years. And these are the people you want to, want to communicate with, not necessarily other musicians, but the ones who buy the tickets are the people who just have a passion for music. And then after I met Barry, um, he worked with me with publicity on this and it started to develop further. And then we formed a vocal competition, a, a flute competition, a string competition. And we alternate those every other year. And so that's been a great source of joy. And we give everyone a debut at Carnegie Hall and so that that is a credential that they will have. And uh, then any way that we can advise them, any way that we can help them with issues that they encounter along the way with their career, we're always here to help. And I have to say, you know, I'm very optimistic about this work. We were in Boston just a couple of weeks ago, and we um, were talking to Brendan Murphy at, uh, at Steinway, at Steinert there. And uh, he introduced us to David Pruitt, who's the head of the um, music department at UMass Boston. They have built an incredible facility. It is gorgeous state-of-the-art, brand new, and I thought, well, isn't this wonderful that, this, that the state university is making this commitment to the arts? Um, and so we're going to be helping them. Hopefully they'll become an old Steinway school. Hopefully we can help them develop their, their concert series. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful working with these people who share the same passion. And that 
goes back to the point of competition. We all have to work together. We're all in this for the same goal. Yeah, we all want to be successful, but we all can be as well. Mm-hmm. And on top of the competition, you and Barry started the foundation as well. So for people who out there don't have one or don't know that the nature of this, that you know there are donations and there are support from um, these folks who then enabled you to be able to, you know, the select the students who are be able to provide this education to people who might not be able to afford it. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Could you maybe articulate, maybe share some of the insights there to why you do it and, and how you go about it? Certainly. Well, first of all, we started the foundation during the deepest recession the United States has had. And we're still standing. People told us we were crazy, but we're still standing, I'm happy to say. And it's it's wonderful to find people who do share our passion for this. Maybe not involved in music, but they do understand the importance of, of this work. And yes, what we try to do is to help with the development of music, whether it be an, an individual artist that we're working with, or as in Boston, which we're hoping to do with, with UMass, or um, just providing events at Carnegie Hall, even private events where people, where young artists can perform and they can also meet people who could be helpful to them along their career. Also training artists. You know, one of the things that we tell artists is, congratulations, now you're a small business. And you have to treat it that way. Because the days when you could be an artist and just play well, practice, and somebody's going to come along and help you are gone forever, I'm afraid. So you have to be a business. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a dirty word to be a business. You know, I always tell people about the great composer George Frederick Handel. He spent the last years of his life in London, although he was born in, in Germany. And when he came to London, he was known as a great composer of opera. Well, London wasn't interested in opera. They were really interested in oratorio, which is like opera, but it's based on a sacred text. There's no acting. There are no costumes. And so Handel thought, well, here's an opportunity. I can save money because I don't have to have the sets and the, and the costumes. And this is what they're interested in. Well, Handel was such a huge success. Now, Handel died in 1759. He left so much money that a foundation was started that continues to this day to give money to people. You have to be practical. And that's part of our, that's really perhaps the biggest mission of our, of our foundation is to teach students how to be practical, how to be business people, and how to go about their lives in that way, yet maintaining themselves as artists as well.
And one of the, I think the the way you articulated, it's already shed a lot of new light on parents and students thinking that you can just be a great musician and the world will, everything else will take care of itself. It's almost the same mentality of, you know, I, I heard this multiple times before that if somebody ends up at Harvard, he or she's all set for the rest of their lives. And it's not true. And I, you know, I personally know a lot of people who struggle after graduating from such schools, you know, mentally, physically, and career-wise. And so when I watched the video, uh, one of the class series called The Master Class, you know, I saw that you you teach, which is really magical. Each student will have anywhere between five to 10 minutes, and they will play a short piece. And I see you and Barry comment on their um, either behavior and just like kind of micro behavior, micro moments that after you mentioned, I was like, Oh, yeah, that's obvious. And then literally immediately after that comment, they go back to play the piano and they're a different person. I could see that on video. So how do you go about the, what is, is there a methodology? I mean, what, what is that structure in your mind to kind of transform somebody um, in a short period of time as well as kind of on ongoing basis? Well, again, it's working with the individual and then the individual personality. Not everybody's going to come on stage in the same way and look in the same way. But if somebody's just friendly by nature, that's what they should emphasize. If someone is a little more thoughtful by nature, that's what it is. It's taking what's natural about the human being and magnifying it. Because I always tell students, you're a performer from the moment the audience sees you coming on stage because they're getting an impression of you. And if you look, well, I, tell, I always tell them, if you look like you're going to the gallows, that's not a good thing. Um, you have to be confident, but you don't want to be arrogant um, looking because that sets people off. So there, there is that. And, you know, it extends in so many ways, not just how you present yourself on stage, but how you present yourself in um to other people who can be helpful. For instance, often artists are rehired because the board likes them. Well, you can't go to a cocktail party and say, yep, nope, yep. Uh, you have to be able to talk to people. So I say, I say to people, well, it, they say, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to say to these people. I said, well, first of all, ask them a question about themselves. People love to talk about themselves. Have you ever lived? Have you lived your whole life in Boston? Have you? How long have you been involved with the with the uh, organization? Just anything, you know. Do you like baseball? Whatever it is, just get them talking about themselves, and you'll find common ground for a conversation. So going back to presenting yourself, that's a big, big part of it. And really, as an artist too, it doesn't matter how you feel on a particular day. If your spirits are a little low, whatever it is, you have a job to do. And that's what Barry and I always tell people. Do your job. This is a job, and you go out, and you do it, and you do it to the best of your capacity. One of the lessons I, I love, and I keep, I, I write it down. I have, you can't really see it, but on my computer, there are moments, there are quotes I take from my guests. And, and in particular, to add to what you said, you know, you have a job to do. And the student's response, and I hear them say that, what is your number one fear? You, the student's sitting down thinking you have a concert upcoming, and they would say almost 
simultaneously or individually, but it's all very consistent, is the fear that they won't be accepted, they will be rejected, that people won't like what they hear. And mm-hmm. um, the AVI response to that is, you know, you have a job to do, and that's outside of your control. Um, and, you know, you, you you can't control that. People don't like your hair, don't like the way you wear you know, and I and I'll take it even one step further. I tell them if you're doing it right, somebody's not going to like you because you're expressing a personality that some people will like and some people won't like, just as you as an individual. And so you can't worry about that. Some people, believe it or not, don't like Beethoven. Okay, that's fine. Some people are passionate, like me, about Beethoven. Um, you know, it really doesn't matter in the long run because life goes on, everything's fine. One of the most devastating things for an artist is when you get your first bad review. And I tell everybody who wants to go in this career, you're going to get a bad review. I can probably quote my first bad review to you. But the but the great reviews, oh, they just kind of, oh, that's nice. They just kind of go, and you've got to find a balance. You've got to say, am I doing what I should be doing? Have I prepared well? Have I thought about this? Am I expressing the music the way I, I should be? If you're doing all of that, forget about what anybody says uh, negatively, because it doesn't matter. It truly doesn't matter. I love that. And you pointed out the bad review, like like an author releasing a book. There was always going to be that one-star review. And you know, one based on star system. And Seth Godin actually said, has anybody ever learned anything from a one-star review? The answer is probably no. I mean, it just outrage from people towards you. But instead, I mean, I typically don't, even if I were to buy an Amazon product, I do not go to the one-star review. Instead, I might look at a three-star review. Somebody mm-hmm. really prefers something, but just a few things that might not work for them. That's much more reasonable and much more useful. But I, I do the same thing. And I'm kind of and then I think to myself, you don't even know these people. You don't know what you know, maybe there was a motive behind it. And when people tell me oh, you've got to see this Broadway show because the reviews were incredible. I think, well, that's nice. I may or may not like it because I don't know the reviewer. I don't know what the reviewer is looking for or cares. Yeah, or what the motive is or what if that person's had a bad day. But I just, if there's one thing I can leave people with is believe in yourself, do your work, and it's going to be fine. You know, I once took... a number of, of students to the, a concert by a 90-year-old pianist named Earl Wilde. Earl Wilde was quite legendary. He died a few years ago. And um, I took them back and I said, Earl, what would you say to these students? And it was so touching because here was a 90-year-old man talking to teenagers and he said to them, don't be afraid. Just don't be afraid. And, you know, when I meet, I'm, I'm one of the older people, but when I meet people who are even older than I am, that's usually what they say is don't be afraid. Life works itself out and there's always a new path to find. And that's been the story of my life, frankly. So yeah. that would be it. Wow. I love that. 
looking back as I get older, I, you know, if I were to say something to my 20 year old self, also, I think I would, don't be afraid is the way to go. Cause you, you know, on one hand, the luxury of being a young person, but there's so many doubts and what, you know, you're surrounded by doubts from other people. Like, how do you see yourself really flourish and even see the possibility of that? But this is beautifully said. We'll keep at it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cosmo. Thanks so much for your time. Best to Adam and take care of yourself. Yeah, likewise. Bye. Bye-bye now. If you enjoy what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Phase Royal podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Phase Royal podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.